0: P.F.K. in Los Angeles, this is Living in the USA. I'm John Wiener, talking about politics, thinking about the left. Later in the hour, Black Lives Matter versus the LAPD. A new official report in LA says the police violated the law by attacking and arresting Black Lives Matter marchers in last summer's protests. Civil rights attorney Carol Sobel will explain. And our TV critic, Ella Taylor, will talk about Rosa Luxemburg, the movie, directed by Margarita von Trata, starring Barbara Sukawa, who won the Best Actress Award for the role at Cannes in 1986. It's showing now on the Criterion Channel and via Film Forum. But first, our Washington political update. And so we turn to Harold Meyerson. Of course, he's editor-at-large of The American Prospect and a contributor to the LA Times Up. Ed Page. We reached him today at home in our nation's capital. Harold, welcome back.
1: Always good to be here, John.
0: Well, we've agreed that Joe Biden's $1.9 trillion COVID relief bill is the most important piece of legislation, at least since Medicare, which was 1966, 55 years ago. How much credit should Bernie Sanders get for its contents and maybe also for its passage? You know, over the last few weeks, we've talked mostly about Joe Manchin, the most conservative Democrat in the Senate and his influence on things. But what about the Democratic Socialist who's now chair of the Senate Budget Committee? The bill that became law is nothing like Joe Biden's politics over the last 30 years. It's nothing like the Democrats under Obama or Clinton, but it's very much the culmination of Bernie's politics over this same period. Or am I going too far in giving Bernie credit?
1: No, you're not. Not at all. Uh, if if Joe Manchin is Mr. Can't Do It, Bernie Sanders has been Mr. Should Do It, Mr. Must Do It, and Mr. Can Do It. And uh, all of those attributes figured significantly in all of the really landmark progressive aspects of the uh, 1.9 trillion stimulus bill that Joe Biden signed into law last week. I I think Bernie's main contribution, though, goes beyond what he's been able to push for in this session of Congress and as Senate uh, budget chair. It really goes to more than any single individual changing the substance of American liberalism, which, which he achieved chiefly through his president, two presidential campaigns of 2015-16 of and of 2019-20. And there he started introducing policies uh, like Medicare for all, like uh, a universal child benefit, which is essentially part of the new stimulus legislation, like the $15 minimum wage, which were way off the beaten track of what mainstream Democrats had uh, contemplated, but which had increasing appeal, first of all, to young voters who had borne the brunt of the very slow and very incomplete recovery from the 2008 panic and recession, and with uh, a lot of voters who really began to understand just how unequally American economy had become and how stagnant incomes and wages had become for frankly, most Americans. Um, And Bernie really was the first person talking about this. And it it really struck all kinds of resonant tones, resonant notes, uh, got a major reception in excess clearly of what anyone expected, including what Bernie expected. When he declared his candidacy the first time around in 2015, he didn't anticipate, you know, uh, essentially running a close second to Hillary Clinton. That probably never crossed his mind. But what he was talking about really struck a chord. And it has not only struck a chord, but over the subsequent five, six years, it has really changed what mainstream Democrats, personified by Joe Biden, believe should be done. Um, and the proof of that pudding is, is in the stimulus legislation.
0: And the, stri- the most striking thing about all of this is that Bernie Sanders has never been a member of the Democratic Party. Uh, Sam Stein at Politico raised the question, has any elected official in American history ever had such a profound influence on a major political party without ever formally joining it?
1: Well, you know, uh, th- th- this is one of the uh, kind of great uh, mysteries as to whether Bernie is or is not a Democrat. Now, in Vermont, there is no party registration, so he's never registered Democrat, but he's been a key member of the uh, Democratic caucus when, since he was elected to the House in 1990 and since he was elected to the Senate. Um, and he has run on the Democratic Party line. So that sets him apart from previous generations of American socialists like Eugene V. Debs and Norman Thomas, who combined ran for president on the Socialist Party ticket, I think, 10 or 11 times uh, with uh, you know considerable uh, support among people of goodwill, but seldom did they think it was a prudent thing to actually vote for them because the president was either going to be a Democrat or Republican. And so it would be a wasted vote. What, what Bernie did was to split the difference. He never actually formally said, I am a Democrat, but by the walks like a duck talks like a duck standard, (laughs) he's been, you know, up to his eyeballs in the democratic party, uh, his, uh, his people on, uh, at the conventions and on the Democratic National Committee have been fighting for all kinds of reforms and changes. And so really, uh, you know, he's in this new position, which was, I think, first explicitly laid out by my mentor, the socialist Michael Harrington, who basically started arguing in the 1960s, why can't socialists be in the Democratic Party? And Bernie Sanders has basically answered Michael Harrington's question by saying, well, We can and we can have a lot more influence running as Democrats than we ever did on a third party ticket. And if that was at all in doubt, then the political history of Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez should have put that doubt to rest.
0: You know, when Bernie first challenged Hillary for the nomination, this was clearly a choice between democratic socialism and mainline Wall Street Democrat. And it seemed like Joe Biden was, his whole career had been in the same mold. I mean, if you're the Senator from Delaware, you're the Senator from Bank of America, from Citibank, from the credit card companies, from the insurance companies. So it seemed like we had a very clear choice In the primaries between a democratic socialist and a wall street democrat were we totally wrong about this well you know if you look at the
1: policies that uh joe biden has now put into law a a lot of it is an explicit repudiation of the democratic presidents who governed on the cusp of or during the age of reagan jimmy carter bill clinton and barack obama Barack Obama, you know, wrongly settled for a smaller stimulus, uh, hoping to get Republican votes. Half of the
0: size, let's say half the size. Half the size,
1: actually even less than half the size, Uh, about 40 some percent of the size of the Biden stimulus. Bill Clinton suspended the kind of child benefits which were inadequate, but which came through welfare by repealing welfare as we know it. uh, Joe Biden, through the quite substantial child benefit targeted both to the poor and the middle class, and going even up to some of the upper reaches of the middle class, has repudiated that. And uh, the deregulatory policies which began under Jimmy Carter uh, are now, you know, clearly uh, going to be under assault by the Biden administration. And so really part of the effect of Bernie Sanders and Elizabeth Warren and the Democratic party's base has been to say enough with the Reagan age Democrats, uh, enough with uh, Bill Clinton's declaration that the era of big government is over, which he proclaimed in his State of the Union address in 1995. We've seen what uh, deregulation and the markets uh, left to their own devices produce. And not just the Democrats, but a clear majority of the American people have said, well, enough with that. Uh, We we need something to equalize essentially the very unequal effects of untrammeled capitalism. Uh, And Joe Biden, who is nothing if not a political animal, understands that. His administration understands that. And that's the direction that they have moved off into.
0: Bernie is well known for his principles, but I think people aren't quite as familiar as with his parliamentary skills. He knows when to fold. Uh, in In the last couple of weeks, he could have fought to keep the $15 minimum wage in that Senate bill. There were ways to do this. They could have over the majority could have overruled the Senate parliamentarian. The Republicans in the past have fired the Senate parliamentarian for, vote, for ruling against them. Bernie decided not to go to the mat for the $15 minimum wage, even though, you know, he disappointed a lot of our friends.
1: Well, it, it's not at all clear that the Democrats, even if they had overruled the parliamentarian, had a majority on that. It's quite possible that Joe Manchin and perhaps Kristen Sinema would then have voted against the larger legislation compelling the Democrats to pull it out. So Bernie is a socialist who can count, uh, which is very <laughs> important uh, when you're in a position of legislative responsibility. Uh, but, you know, he can he will push as far as reality will permit him to go. Uh, The catchphrase of the uh, socialist whom I mentioned earlier, Michael Harrington, was the left wing of the possible. That's where Bernie Sanders uh, is now and has long been.
0: So what's next for Bernie? We know there's going to be this huge Economic Recovery Act, the infrastructure bill, but he's got some other things going too.
1: Well, you know, in terms of the infrastructure bill, it's pretty clear that the Democrats are probably going to have to introduce some tax increases, some progressive tax increases. And uh, on on Wednesday of this week, uh, Bernie introduced a bill uh, which was co-sponsored by the head of the uh, Congressional Progressive Caucus in the House, Rashida Tlaib, uh, that would have, uh, that calls for doing something that I've been writing about for a decade now, uh, banging a drum on, which is creating a surcharge to corporate taxes when the ratio between the CEO's pay and the median worker pay uh, is excessive. And, and in, Bernie, in Bernie's bill, it starts at if it's over 50 to 1, then the surcharge goes a little higher if it's 100 to 1, and, and, and so on. You know, back in the 1960s, Uh, The ratio uh, was about 20 to one when uh, at the time uh, much of the workforce was unionized, which gave them uh, a relatively decent wage. And at the time, uh, high incomes were taxed at a very high rate, Um, like, uh, you know, uh, under Eisenhower, it it in theory got up to almost 90 percent. Uh, By the 1960s, it was down to somewhere between 70 and 50 percent. And then under Reagan, the major cuts to the highest brackets of income tax began. Uh, So that today, um, according to research by two eminent uh, University of California at Berkeley economists, Emmanuel Saiz and uh, Gabriel Zuckman, uh, billionaires actually pay a lower uh, rate of taxes than uh, you know the average American taxpayer. Uh, billionaires pay at about twenty-three percent. The average taxpayer pays at about twenty-eight percent, and and a lot of that you know is just the complete inflation of the wages uh, and other income of top corporate executives. So this bill would uh, would rein it in, and I hope you know I mean it has a lot of progressive sponsors. I I hope it it makes it onto the floor because this is incredibly popular. I would love to see the Republicans forced to vote uh, on this. This should be uh, the kind of thing that Democrats can run on in 2022 and 2024. I mean, you know, the ratio was 20 to 1, as I said, in the 1960s. Right now, it's about 320 to 1. So do we really think that today's CEOs are 16 times better than their predecessors in the 1960s. I doubt it, I don't think so. Uh, what they are is you know, emboldened by uh, tax cuts to their particular income bracket and a lot more powerful. Um, this is a purely political evolution that has allowed them to lord it over everyone else and it's through uh, pol- democratic politically enacted laws that we can begin to establish, uh, you know, a a reasonable level of fairness for, you know, for workers who are responsible uh, for the success of corporations. It's usually not just the CEO.
0: And there's one more thing we need to talk about. We have an update on the union organizing campaign at the Amazon Fulfillment Center in Bessemer, Alabama.
1: We do. And the update is not only has Joe Biden basically come out in support for it, but late last week, of all people, Republican Senator Marco Rubio of Florida wrote an op-ed in USA Today saying he supported it. But then it was couched in a kind of Republican doublespeak, which, which, which is somewhat remarkable. The reason he supported it, he said, is uh, well, of course, you know, workers deserve fair treatment, but the real issue is Amazon is a, a woke corporation that uh, really is running against what he called working class values, which he said, you know, this might lead to who knows what, transgender bathrooms, that sort of thing. And, 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 and so the, the takeaway was clear. He, wasn't, he explicitly said he wasn't going to support uh, legislation To make unionization uh, more easier, uh, like the PRO Act, which the House has already passed. He specifically said he would oppose that. So the position of Rubio, and and this is kind of a position evolving among Republicans who are targeting the white working class. So it's the kind of thing you could see out of Rubio or Josh Hawley or Tom Cotton. Uh, The position is, yes, Workers at a place like Amazon should have a union, but no workers at a place like Walmart, which is a reliable supporter of Republican candidates, should never have a union. And should anyone ever dare to try to unionize an arch Republican company like MyPillow, Pillow, uh, <laughs> should be taken out and shot. Anyway, that was Marco Rubio's contribution to the fray, and it was certainly an interesting contribution.
0: Harold Meyerson, read them at prospect.org. Thank you, Harold. Always great to have you on the show.
1: Always great to be here, John.
0: It's the same old story. This is Living in the USA, and I'm John Wiener, talking about politics, thinking about the left. Return with us now to last summer when Black Lives Matter marchers filled the streets everywhere in America, including Los Angeles, and where the L.A. Police Department violated the law by attacking and arresting BLM marchers. That's what a new report commissioned by the L.A. City Council has concluded For comment, we turn to Carol Sobel. She's a civil rights lawyer and advocate. She's one of the attorneys representing Black Lives Matter in a lawsuit about violent abuses of power by the L.A. police during last summer's protests. She has repeatedly sued the city of L.A. for violating the rights of the homeless population. She spent 20 years working for the ACLU in L.A., In 1997, she left the ACLU to start her own law practice. She also serves on the board of directors of the National Police Accountability Project. Carol Sobel, welcome. Thank you. Well, let's start with the official report to the L.A. City Council and some of the worst offenses, which I thought some of the worst offenses by the LAPD were the way they handled mass arrests. What did the police do there?
2: Well, they did a couple of things. First of all, they decided they would um, arrest people for violating the curfew. That is an infraction under the Los Angeles Municipal Code. As a matter of law, It violates the Eighth Amendment to the United States Constitution to put somebody in jail for an infraction. An infraction is not a jailable offense at any time. So why, if you are citing people at the outset for an infraction, you have no ability to put them in jail. They did that, I think, clearly because they wanted to get people off the streets and not for any other reason. They arrested hundreds and hundreds of people. Um, They put in the curfew mainly at that point because they were unprepared. And why they were unprepared is just a mystery to all of us. It isn't like we have not seen mass demonstrations. So the first night, I think almost everybody was arrested for a curfew violation. Some might have been arrested for failure to disperse. They handcuffed them. They wrote out citations. They stuffed the citations in people's belts and in their pockets and said, we're going to release you in a few minutes and let you go. They held them in handcuffs for about an hour. Then they came back and said, sorry, we're going to take you and book you. So now they had hundreds of people. They had no capacity to book them. And they put them on buses. This is the height of the pandemic in June. They put them on buses, closed, close quarters, um, no masks on the officers, Um, They pulled people's masks off their faces to create exposure. No water, no bathroom access. People were urinating on themselves. The handcuffs were tight and they didn't care. Now, you might say that, well, this was unexpected and it was a couple of hundred people. So, you know, how would the uh, LAPD be prepared for this? In 2011 when they removed the occupy protesters from city hall lawn they had several hundred people they were unprepared then they did the exact same thing that was the first time we experienced the large mass arrest with no water access no bathroom access being held in handcuffs then i think it was in a concrete on the floor of a concrete garage and that was an event they had planned for for two months <laughs> So so I don't think that saying this was a spontaneous, unexpected event changes it. Because once you settled the Occupy case, you should have said, okay, we might need to arrest a couple of hundred people at the same time again. And how are we going to process them? So let's go fast forward to the Ferguson protests in 2014. They arrested a couple of hundred people. They brought in a mobile Field force booking system. So they have these. They have mobile bookings. And they they run my clients on Skid Row all the time. And they know who has an outstanding warrant. They can do all that in the field when they want to.
0: Another big problem was the police use of weapons that cause serious injuries. The official report to the city council on the protest discusses the LAPD use of something called the 40 millimeter less lethal weapon. It shoots something they call sponge rounds, which are intended to, quote, incapacitate but not kill. Several people have sued after being seriously injured and hospitalized by these 40-millimeter less lethal rounds. The LA Times posted a video, police body cam video, of a protester being shot in the head by one of these while he was trying to run away. This was not downtown, but on... uh, May 30th on Beverly Boulevard, east of Fairfax, outside CBS TV City. The victim was a 24-year-old former Marine who was hospitalized for four days, two of them in intensive care. What's your opinion of the 40-millimeter less lethal weapon?
2: Well, just to to be clear about that particular case that you raise, the police who shot him say it was an accident. They were aiming for someone behind him. And that points out the problem of these weapons. They are very precise weapons. They hit who you shoot at. Um, They are not used, they're not meant to disperse a crowd. They are, as you say, meant to incapacitate. No less lethal weapon is supposed to be, have impact above the waist because it could strike a vital organ, it could cause a heart arrhythmia, it could cause a brain bleed, as in the case of the gentleman you talked about, it could kill someone. Um, I think the hallmark of the LAPD using less lethals in these situations is that they are totally untrained. And in this instance, they are responding to a demonstration that is highly critical of the police. So they're being asked to set aside their emotions and their biases. And what's clear is they they didn't do that and they couldn't do it. Um, So one of the things that we think is really important is uh, that the use of less lethals in this situation be restricted. But we have a couple of people who were injured when the police shot those 40 millimeter rounds into a crowd of protesters who were running away. So I'll tell you what the training was in this instance. In 2018, they apparently did um, uh, incident control and de-escalation training. Everybody had this three or four hour unit. Some people were trained on the 40 millimeter. That was about one hour, less than one hour. Some people were just given the instruction manual and the weapon (laughs) (laughs) and said, shoot, (laughs) shoot. Oh, um, what One of the other things that, that some of the officers said, well, the 40 millimeter has a sight on it and the sight is three inches above the barrel. So that's why we hit people in the head, wrong. Because from the waist to the top of your head is more than three inches. So it's every excuse in the book. I will tell you that the two people who shot the, the Marine have been on the force 15 and 18 years, I believe. They They would have gone through the 2018 training but they have said that they had no training. And I think part of that is that some all people got was uh, a booklet and said, you know, and a simulator. Um, and so they didn't understand what this was. And people, you know, officers have said they got handed this weapon on the morning of the protest. They had no idea how to use it.
0: And then there's the police use of batons. We call them clubs. The official policy, I learned, is that officers can use batons to push people in large crowds they are trying to disperse. But they are allowed to hit people with batons only when those individuals present a danger. Have I got that right?
2: Yes, you have that right. And the the viral video on all of this, I disagree with the report on this because the report said they didn't find any evidence of, of violations of policy on the baton, the viral video about the May 30th protest of Black Lives Matter at Pan Pacific Park, the officers are seen whacking people, not pushing it. The, the pushing is a jabbing motion, but in order to do that, you have to have a place where people can go. And people were surrounded by the police. So there was nowhere for them to go, and yet the police were whacking them in the shins and um, and wagging them in the arms um, and literally strikes like you were you were, you know, going to hit a baseball. Those kinds of strikes are clearly barred. Uh,
0: the biggest problem with the strategy the police leadership ordered for many people was that they didn't distinguish between the peaceful demonstrators and what the report calls criminal elements who were throwing objects, creating violence or looting the police arrested and detained hundreds, eventually thousands of peaceful demonstrators and didn't do enough to arrest the people who were violent or the organized looters who were taking advantage of the police attention to the peaceful demonstrators.
2: You know, if it weren't um, so sad, it would be funny. It was like a Keystone cop movie, watching the videos of the police with protesters sitting cross light in the street, chanting. They were, you know, very, very peaceful and a block away. Not even that sometimes were all these looters. And, you know, you're sitting there and you're thinking, how about putting officers on that street and having fewer officers surrounding the people sitting cross on the street peacefully? So here's what Chief Moore said at a press conference when that the video of that event in particular went viral. Chief Moore said... When we are doing a task, we can only focus on that task at the time. And so, as many of us said, one reporter said, really, chief? Shouldn't you have focused on the looters then (laughs) and let people continue to march through the streets chanting? Um, The looters were completely unattached to any protest activity. If you can't walk and chew gum at the same time, maybe what you could do is walk and let the gum chewing wait till later. (laughs) (laughs) But um, it's just a a totally uh, unacceptable excuse and a uh, terrifying example of how misplaced the police effort was, because their focus was on their enemies and their enemies were the protesters.
0: You know, I have to say, you and I have been doing these interviews on the radio for a long time now. In 2000, when the Democratic National Convention was in L.A. downtown and there were protests there, you were working as an official observer at, when the LAPD attacked demonstrators. Uh, um, and uh, I remember asking you in a live on-air interview, what was it like to be shot between the eyes by a police rubber bullet? You probably remember that incident.
2: Uh, I remember that incident very well. Um, it was terrifying. I, I I didn't know what had happened. That was the first time the LAPD used rubber bullets against protesters. Another woman who was on top of a flatbed truck, she lost an eye. And had, they, uh, had the bullet that struck me, uh, it struck me right between the eyes at the top, the bridge of my nose, had that bullet been a half an inch either way, I would have lost an eye. Um, so I was really lucky. All I had, in addition to a pretty bad concussion, was a fractured, a subdural fracture of the nasal cavity, which gave me the most excruciating sinus headaches for for probably um, six months after that. Um, but but I was I was lucky in that particular instance for the woman who lost her eye and for me. We were the two most serious injuries I think in in, in two thousand the officers were not properly uh, well they were trained they they knew they were supposed to shoot the rubber bullets at the ground they shot at our heads and i actually have a um a photograph in my office he actually captured the moment of the officer pointing his gun up at this woman mm-hmm. and so i keep that in my eye along with uh, in my office along with a picture of my um, my injury to um, remind me uh, what I do, but just to 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 let your listeners know that night, the reason I wasn't at the front line at that point when I got shot from 80 feet away by an officer across Olympic Boulevard, the reason that I was not at the front line was because I already had a concussion because an officer on horseback had, had whacked me in the back of the head with a baton and two horses had trampled me. So I was trying to avoid injury standing 80 feet away, and I got shot between the eyes.
0: And you may recall, you may recall that uh, after the LAPD Rampart scandal in 2001, the LAPD was put into receivership by the Department of Justice. We had a federal judge overseeing the LAPD for 12 years, one of the longest consent decrees in American history. Under the consent decree, the LAPD agreed to undertake dozens of reforms to check officers' conduct and subject the department to regular audits by a monitor. That ended in 2013, eight years ago. In the process, we got a new reforming police chief, Charlie Beck. They made a big deal about recruiting people of color and, and women. We were told then the LAPD had changed.
2: So now... We are back to, um, the the dispute that I have with some of my friends, Connie Rice in particular, is whether we are back to Daryl Gates, whether we are back to Bernie Parks, or whether we are back to Ed Davis. <laughs> pick, pick your evil here. Mm-hmm. Um, and it is, uh, it is really problematic. The city is being sued again for falsely identifying people as gang members. Now they haven't, Killed anybody that they falsely identified as gang members, as they did in the in the uh, the um, uh, the crash unit and the Rampart scandal. But but that also brings me to another issue. And I hope I'm not stepping on on your your schedule here. But um, the history of special units in the LAPD has been uh, a disaster. It has been an extraordinarily expensive disaster. One of the highest individual uh, payouts. In the, um, in, uh, for police misconduct against the city, was somebody who was in the rampart case and who was uh, paralyzed. There were a number of them. I, I was trying to add up the cost of the rampart scandal last night, and it is enormous. But before the rampart scandal, we had multiple scandals about intelligence gathering in this city. And um, for, for, um, uh, in 1975 the California Supreme Court said that a plan by Ed Davis to um, put undercover officers and in intelligence surveillance in uh, at UCLA to identify subversive professors and students in the anti-war movement was unconstitutional. So it, it and I say this because the report the current report recommends, special unit to deal with surveillance and intelligence gathering. We've been down that road before. It's been a disaster. What we know about the LAPD is they cannot do anything like this in a lawful manner. Um, So 1975, the plan to go after anti-war people uh, is uh, thrown out by the California Supreme Court. 1984 is the Coalition Against Police Abuse. This is Daryl Gates's baby with Michael Zinzin, who is a friend of mine, at the at the head of this organization. Um, the city pays out almost two million dollars in that case. But then, did they learn? But then you say to yourself, did they learn their lesson? No, because then when Michael ran for public office, the LEPD started a smear campaign, sort of an undercover smear campaign. And then the city paid another $3.5 million to Michael for um, perpetuating the, the violation of his civil rights. Um, the 1984 settlement was part of a series of lawsuits called Red Squad lawsuits. There've been these Red Squad intelligence units around the country, and, and uh, the American Friends Service Committee had funded lawsuits in San Francisco, in New York, in Chicago, in Los Angeles. There were seven in all is my, my best recollection of this. Um, and the, the way the LAPD lawsuit broke open was the capital lawsuit was somebody went to court one day and saw this guy in a police uniform, John Dial. He was a captain in the LAPD. He and his wife, Connie, were both undercover. And although they were married, they either attempted to or had intimate relationships with people who did not know they were undercover officers um, and who were activists. I know one person who was just devastated, just dropped out of everything. So somebody went to court, saw him in a police uniform and said, John, you know, I, and and that's how we knew he was infiltrating, uh, that we were being infiltrated and a lot of organizations. The, LA, the uh, LAPD infiltrated the ACLU um, and a lot of other community organizations. And true to form, the people who infiltrated became the instigators of trying to get something violent done. And people pushed back on it. Nothing like that happened. But they went after people. And when they got caught, uh, there was a a mainframe in Stephen Gates's garage. He was Daryl Gates's brother. And all the information was turned over to him so the LAPD wouldn't have it. When they got caught, they also gave this information to a group called Western Goals Foundation. Which then used it to blacklist people from being hired in environmental jobs and in a lot of jobs that were run by these corporations, sort of like the the the, the precursor of the Koch brothers. That recommendation made me rethink all of this. Um, I was class member in the Western Goals lawsuit, because they had collected a lot of information uh, about me. There's nothing interesting about me, <laughs> other than I worked day that. and night. Um, but, <laughs> but you know, it was, um, it, and it's sort of like, here we are back here again. 35 years later, we're back here again. They have shown over and over, they cannot do it.
0: Well, the LA Times reported on this story, quote, lawsuits drove much of the meaningful change the LAPD has implemented after heavy-handed and undisciplined responses to past protests, close quote. Right now, you're one of the attorneys representing Black Lives Matter in a lawsuit against the city of LA. Uh, tell us about that lawsuit.
2: So Black Lives Matter is uh, a lawsuit about the um, uh, the events of basically May 29th, I think it's the first night in LA, through um, June 3rd when they, when the city stopped the curfew and stopped uh, the mass arrest. These were the George Floyd protests. And um, there were about around 4,000 people arrested. And we've alleged that all of them had their rights violated when they were uh, arrested and held for hours on these buses. Buses with no air filtration, no ventilation. Um, The windows were deliberately kept closed. Everybody was handcuffed. People's hands were turning blue. People still have nerve damage from it. Um, There were no bathrooms. I know the police are saying that well people were only held on average one or two hours that simply isn't true. Some of the people who were arrested in one area of the city such as Hollywood were driven out to Van Nuys. Anybody who drives in Los Angeles knows that would take you longer to get out there. When some of the people were driven out to Van Nuys and there was or, or some other place in the valley there was no room there to do this so they were driven down to the harbor. Mm-hmm. And people remained on the bus driving around the city. You know, a lot of people were brought to closer locations. So we are seeking damages and we are seeking change. Uh, We've also moved to limit or prohibit the use of less lethals. We think that 40 millimeters have no place in this and that um, uh, there's no reason to shoot people, uh, to disperse them. We are challenging the fact that people were Kettled, which is uh, uh, the the term that we use, and it comes from actually how the British policed the Irish. Um, It was the black kettle. They would surround them um, with police, and that's where the term comes from. We are challenging uh, all of those things. We are challenging the fact that people were taken into custody when they should have been released on an infraction. And as we've said to the, to the Los Angeles Times, which asked us for an estimate of the value of the case, we think this case is, is, is probably going to cost the city about $40 million. And that's a very modest amount. For, for everybody. And some people were very seriously injured. We'll be negotiating those injuries separately, as we did in the May Day case. One woman had her jaw fractured. Uh, people were, as you said, pointed out earlier, people were hospitalized with head wounds. The the Marine it has a separate case, but we have other people in our case who were hospitalized with head wounds. And it is, uh, it's just um, stunning to me that we could be here again. And just So, you know, I actually have been doing this in 1993. I spent the better part of six months in the basement of the LAPD personnel building on Vignes near the county jail, uh, rewriting the crowd control manual after the Rodney King uprising uh, with Carol Watson, who was a great police misconduct lawyer here in Los Angeles, and Robin Toma, who now heads our civil rights commission in the county. Um, And uh, among the people involved was uh, a lieutenant from Metro, uh, Michael Hillman, who um, has turned out, you know, to be um, an advisor to a lot of different cities on what they're doing wrong. The other thing, uh, and I just want to make this really clear, is that we've litigated and over and over is the dispersal order. The dispersal order has to be heard. You have to give people a legitimate chance to leave and tell them how to leave. And this was the core issue in the Ferguson case that the inexperienced incident commander there um, was uh, just arrived and five minutes later gave a dispersal order that uh, was totally inaudible for almost everybody who was there um and when people thought they were complying with it he decided they weren't complying and so he started chasing them and had the police chase them and you know i think most of us if the police start chasing you your instinct is going to be to run yeah <laughs> and then it sort of it sort of compounds from there so we thought that that after that you know it would be a little bit differently and in one of life's small ironies um the city paid The settlement in the Ferguson protest case from 2014, the day after George Floyd was murdered.
0: Carol Sobel, she's one of the civil rights attorneys representing Black Lives Matter in its lawsuit against the LAPD. Carol, thanks for everything you do, and thanks for talking with us today.
2: I hope the next time we talk about something different, we don't have to come talk about this again. Okay, Okay. thank you.
0: It's the same old story. This is Living in the USA, and I'm John Wiener talking about politics, thinking about the left. Now it's time for our regular feature on TV in the age of the virus, and so we turn to Ella Taylor. Of course, she's a longtime film critic and writer whose work has appeared in the New York Times, the LA Weekly, and at npr.org. We reached her today at home in Santa Monica. Ella, welcome back.
3: Thank you, John. Happy to be here.
0: Well, today we want to talk about Rosa Luxemburg, the film. It was directed by Margarita von Tratta. Of course, it's about the Marxist revolutionary of the World War I era, and it's playing now on the Criterion channel. Tell us about Rosa Luxemburg, the film.
3: It is playing on Criterion if you have membership, but if you don't and still want to see it, Film Forum in New York, which has a virtual presence and is opening opening physically quite soon, but it's playing virtually there. And uh, if you get a ticket there, they will um, put you through to, to a Criterion where you can watch it without, you know, becoming a member. So we wish Rosa Luxemburg a happy 150th <laughs> birthday. <laughs> yes. The film on Film Forum is part of a retrospective of the outstanding German actress, uh, Barbara Sukoa, who has made several films with Margarete von Trotter, one of them quite recently and quite good, the Hannah, uh, where she played Hannah Arendt in, well, 2012. Uh, Margarete von Trotter bez- was best known, really, with the launch of her career for The Lost Honor of Katharina von Blum, which she made with her then-husband, Volker Schlondorf, She's now 79 years old, and she's, I think, considered to be the queen of uh, new German cinema. I find her films in general to be directed with rather a heavy paw, um largely because she's not the greatest screenwriter in the world her, her screenplays are uh, very expository very you know it's the characters are speaking history rather than speaking their daily lives and that i think also weakens this film rosa luxembourg which was made in 1986. she does not like to be called the women's filmmaker and yet she's made numerous films with very feisty women at the center. And of course, Rosa Luxemburg was the feistiest of the lot. This is kind of a love letter to Luxemburg, who I I think it's fair to say has been treated with some ambivalence by historians of the left, uh, depending on whether they espouse her um, revolutionary politics. She was quite openly for the dictatorship of the proletariat. and uh, the the film covers the intersection of her private and public lives once she became uh, a German citizen. She was born in, in Poland to a Jewish family, but became a German citizen, I think, because she felt that the revolutionary activity in Germany was where it's at and where she wanted to be. And it portrays her as probably what she was, a fearless and passionate firebrand and a great orator and Marxist revolutionary. Uh, And also, uh, I think one of the things this film brings out that is less known about Luxembourg is that she was actually a fairly ardent early feminist as well. I think it came secondary to her uh, class politics. Um, she uh, She worked together with Karl Liebknecht until they fell out, and then they fell back in again towards the the end. And she's very the film shows her very caught up in internal color conflicts within the, the the German far left, including um, her lover uh, and Liebknecht, um, Not particularly because she was uh, a quarrelsome type, but rather because there were quite serious divisions within uh, the Communist Party, in particular. And uh, it's framed by uh, her letter writing uh, in her final imprisonment in Berlin after she was accused of inciting an, an insurrection. Uh, Sukawa uh, could probably make any character live. She's a marvelously expressive um, actress who, although she's very suited to playing these firebrand types, she doesn't overdo them. Uh, And that I think is the strength of, of her performances. So she really brings the film to life, and the other performances are, are, are very good. And the directing itself is good. It's just that the screenplay is so leaden and so wooden that you could almost recite each line before it comes up. <laughs> She came to a horrifying end. She was never one to pipe down for the sake of either saving her own skin uh, or for the sake of, of saving the party. And although she was, she comes over in the movie as a brilliant strategist who knew when, as she put it, the proletariat was not really ready for revolution. So she was try to restrain others. Um, She also, I I guess you could say she, I mean, you may have more light to shed on this as a historian, John, but um, she was responsible for the 1919 uprising in Berlin which landed her in prison and uh, brought her an absolutely horrifying end um, in a canal in Berlin where her body was thrown. Um, And a couple of, uh, I think it was a couple of decades later, a body was identified as her, but not everybody was sure that it really was her her body. And uh, what I would say is that I wanted more from the movie. I mean, the the critics dictum is never to tell the filmmaker what film they should have made. But I wanted to hear more about uh, her early life in a Polish Jewish family where uh, her mother was actually quite religious, but her father introduced her to liberal concepts, which really launched her on a career which went far beyond his beliefs. Mm -hmm. Um, She had a limp as a result of a childhood injury, um, which lasted all her life. But according to the film, it doesn't seem to have stopped her attracting almost every man, man who came upon her. So she had a very active love life. Uh, And was actually pretty faithful to all her men. And I wish the same could be said of the men themselves.
0: (laughs) I understand that Barbara Sukawa uh, won the Best Actress Award at the Cannes Film Festival for this role.
3: Yes, and I I think that it was well deserved because although the film is is pretty didactic um, and brings a complexity and a, a depth to the to the role that really makes makes the film and really makes it a, a very moving film to see.
0: So Rosa Luxemburg, the film by directed by Margarita von Trata and starring Barbara Sukawa, playing on the Criterion channel and you can get there via film forum. And now for something completely different, a movie that's not about a woman who was a Marxist revolutionary.
3: No, indeed. Uh, although this film is another kind of love letter uh, and perhaps less successfully. Um, the film is called Audrey. So you will by now have guessed that it's about—it's uh, a documentary about Audrey Hepburn, a new documentary which has just opened on Netflix. It's directed by Helena Cohn, who I believe is British. And if you are a... Audrey Hepburn fan, and I've never met anybody who wasn't, you won't learn a whole much that's new from it. But it's very nice to to remake her acquaintance, even if she had long periods of unhappiness in her life. There's some lovely commentary from the talented film critic uh, Molly Haskell throughout the movie that put, that places it uh, in a context, which otherwise the movie doesn't work very hard to do. The thing about Audrey Hepburn is that she never dies. I mean, when I was a teenager, all my friends and I wanted to be her. And my daughter, who is now 23, when she was 15, she also wanted to be Audrey <laughs> Hepburn, and so did all her friends. And um, that's an interesting thing, because she brought, uh, as the film shows, a whole new sensibility, not only, well, more to the world of fashion than I think the world of acting, it can be said. Um, And the film divides itself into three um, major themes. One is the the story of her early life and her blossoming career. And uh, she actually wanted to be a dancer. And in some ways, I think it's fair to say she would have made a better dancer than she was an actress. I think what attracted people to her, and I think especially men, is the, I mean, she's she's a, a pixie girl without the manic part, <laughs> you know, she's small and frail, but she also, uh, the thing that was nice to make acquaintance with again was that, Extraordinarily innocent smile of hers that was completely without guile, um, that seemed to be part of her, uh, and that showed her delight uh, in her early career um, in Roman Holiday. A friend of mine's father did the makeup for my my fair lady. We all went got to see the, see it at the premiere. Um, all dolled up in our little taffeta dresses. (laughs) And uh, she's marvelous in that, um, opposite Rex Harrison. And then, of course, Breakfast breakfast at Tiffany's, which uh, a lot of women don't like as much as men do because she's playing a cool girl there. (laughs) But an extraordinarily innocent, sweet, and often rather sad cool girl. But I think that the thing that really brought her onto the international scene was her lifelong alliance with the Givenchy fashion house. And she was the one who popularized and pioneered the little black dress, which has never gone away. It's always a a evergreen classic and she dressed it in, in such classy ways. Before her, as the film points out, the the image of the ideal woman was either the girl next door, as exemplified by Doris Day, or the sexpot, as exemplified by Marilyn Monroe in the United States, and in England, Diana Dawes. Hepburn brought really, I think, a a non-sexy classiness, both to her fashion and to her acting, that seemed to appeal, you know, that radiant smile. Um, even as Holly Golightly, she just charmed everybody. The second part of the film is about her underlying unhappiness. She had a just an awful childhood. I always thought she was Danish, but in fact, she was born in Belgium and lived in Holland for a long time. So she had three passports, including her British passport. She was an unloved child um, who was abandoned by her beloved but very cold British father who became a fascist, an official fascist who joined Oswald Mosley's United British Front and uh, was rabidly anti-Semitic. And her mother, who was an equally chilly Belgian noblewoman, who was also uh, a somewhat more latent fascist. The father abandoned the family when Hepburn was six. And so she, you know, she kept trying to find love all her life. She married the actor Mel Ferrer. And they were happy for a number of years, but he kind of drifted away from her. And then a disastrous marriage to uh, an Italian psychiatrist named Andrea Dotti. Dotti. (laughs) Maybe he was Dotti too, but he was certainly very promiscuous uh, and made her extremely unhappy. And the third part of the film is about her happiness as a UNICEF ambassador, where she really found... The antidote to her childhood, I think it's fair to say, is that I think like Princess Diana and and other people with troubled childhoods, she really gravitated uh, and enormously enjoyed uh, being kind to and providing for impoverished or otherwise unhappy children, especially in Africa. 1992, she developed an a rare form of abdominal cancer, but her last Years with a, a fellow Dutchman named Robert Walders, who had been the companion to Merle Oberon and switched to um, <laughs> switched to Audrey Hepburn, which makes him sound like a gold digger. But apparently, he was just a lovely, lovely guy. So it's a great film to watch. It's not particularly new or groundbreaking, but I enjoyed it enormously, uh, and it does uh, rather effectively show why her reputation has never really flagged, even in the years uh, after her death.
0: That's Audrey, the documentary about Audrey Hepburn, showing now on Netflix. And we have a little bit of time left for one more.
3: Okay, I'm going to tell a very quick story here. In 1962, I came downstairs at my parents' house to find my father pacing around the living room saying, good God, old Grev was a spy. Now, old Grev. I've been hearing about Greville Alwyn from my dad really since my early childhood because he was in my father's regiment during World War II and he was my father's favorite person there. I, I somehow bumped him up to his commanding officer, but it seems in fact that he was a private. And this film tells the story um, of Greville Wynne, who's this very anonymous, ordinary businessman, not an outstanding personality in any way, who was co opted by the American CIA and British MI5 to be a courier between London and the Soviet Union, precisely because of his anonymity, that nobody would really notice him, in order to carry crucial intelligence uh, between the Soviet Union and Britain to defuse the Cuban Missile Crisis. For his pains, he was caught and imprisoned and tortured for eight years, which was something that my father had no idea they lost touch after the war, and uh, the, the, he's played by Benedict Cumberbatch in the in the movie. And Cumberbatch is as good as he always is. It's kind of a noir film with uh, a rather unhappy ending, except of course, as we now know, the missile crisis was indeed averted. But he joined forces with a Soviet officer who was really also a kind of spy who had very close access to Khrushchev. And you get the feeling watching this movie that it, this should really be the Soviet officer's story because he he turned out to be quite the hero in his way who not only put him himself in danger but eventually uh, um, was killed for his pains. Um, and the movie suggests that he saved um, the Cumberbatch figure of Greve Wyn by not mentioning that there was somebody else involved with all these messages being carried backwards and forwards. Greville when after, afterwards, after he came out of prison and was repatriated to Britain, had a very sad history. He was just traumatized, became an alcoholic, left his wife and wrote an autobiography in which he apparently made up a lot of details. Uh, uh, So he had a very serious history, but my dad was completely captivated by the fact that this quiet, shy man, even shyer than my Shy Dad, had become, you know, a major spy.
0: The one other notable thing about the movie is that the wife of Benedict Cumberbatch is played by Jesse Buckley, who was so wonderful as the American country singer in Scotland in in Wild Rose.
3: Yes, and uh, she's marvelous, as she always is. At the beginning, I was thinking, who is this? Because she's a great <laughs> yes. lady, twin set in pearls and so on. But whatever she does, she brings this kind of unassuming competence. Um, she can be bubbly on demand and she can be, you know, the sort of helpmeet who's trying to uh, save her marriage, as she is in this movie. And there is another uh, actor who's worth mentioning is that the CIA officer who recruits Greville Wynn is played by Rachel Brosnahan of The Marvelous Mrs. Maisel, And she's quite good at being uh, extremely ruthless, much more so than her English counterpart, who fears for Greville Wynn's safety, as she does not.
0: <laughs> so The Courier uh, opens Friday, March 19th, where? Now, here's the
3: thing. It opens in theatres, or so we're told, at the AMC Burbank and the AMC at Sunset in West Hollywood um, and the Broadway in Santa Monica. That is what we are told and that's what the publicist confirmed. And it is said that, that theatres are beginning to open as of the coming week. So um it's it, the VOD release is yet to be announced so I don't know what's going to happen there but for those of you who are willing to go into a theater at 25% apparently can see this I would say call first <laughs> <laughs> because we don't know you know if they'll be ready to open I assume that the theaters are going to have to be reconfigured um in some, you know, in some measure, to allow people to sit, I think it's eight feet apart that it's supposed to be, or, or something like that. So that's what I was told. Um, and there are, and I know for a fact that there are a number of theaters, both in LA and New, New York and elsewhere, that are planning to open, reopen very soon. For, so for all of you who love to see your movies on the big screen it's coming back but you have to reserve in advance you can't just walk in
0: ella taylor our critic for tv in the age of the virus ella thanks for talking with us today
3: thank you john enjoyed it as always
0: It for today's Living in the USA. Our sound editors are Will Broughton and Alan Minsky. Our social media maven is Renee Reynolds. KPFK's programming traffic director is Matt Perez. KPFK's general manager is Anyel Zuberi-Fields. Thanks as always to Rye Cooter for our theme music Mambo Sinuendo.